beginning It was all noise and light But from that cradle of chaos The first winged one took flight And off the wings of that great bird Rolled the great globe of the earth Quickly rose the friends we know From that cradle Hello and welcome to the first episode of Before Us, a podcast about the past. I'm your host, Dan Resler. Now, usually on this show, we will be talking about the history of the last 5,000 years or so, roughly the period of human history since the invention of writing, and thus a written record. But seeing as this is a new beginning for us, I think it would be fitting for us to start a bit earlier. Well, in fact, quite a lot earlier when man first came to exist. Now, before our species, Homo sapiens, there have been, of course, a lot of other species within our same genus of Homo, including Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis, and so on, various predecessors and offshoots within the larger human story. But I'm interested in what came before all of that, some seven million years ago, when our last common ancestor with the chimpanzee walked the earth. Over time, there was a split into the genus Homo, by way of Australopithecus, and the genus Pan, which includes modern chimpanzees and bonobos. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, we are now alone among the genus Homo since the extinction of Neanderthals some 40,000 years ago. However, we must not forget that we do have a close cousin that remains in the world today, the chimpanzee and the rest of the great apes, bonobos, orangutans, and gorillas. We share about 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, indicating a remarkable relationship between the two species. But it doesn't take a modern knowledge of genetics to understand this relationship. Humans and apes share similar physiology. Their hands look like our hands. Their eyes look like our eyes. Their faces are our faces. When you look at the body and face of an ape, it's pretty easy to see something of ourselves. And I think that relationship is something worth exploring. So today we will be examining the ways in which we have thought about and interacted with our closest animal cousins, the great apes, throughout history. To do that, we will be looking at four historical episodes that illuminate something of our relationship. In Act 1, we'll talk about the famous 1860 Oxford evolution debates between Robert Huxley, popularly known as Darwin's Bulldog, and Bishop Samuel Wilberforce. In Act 2, we'll be the voyage of Ham the Astrochimp, the first hominid in space. In Act 3 will be the story of the talking apes, and in Act 4, the apes go to Hollywood, how we see our nearest animal cousins on the silver screen. There will be plenty of monkeying around on this first episode of Before Us, so stay with us. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around, but we're too busy singing to put anybody down. Act 1, the 1860 Oxford Evolution Debates, and I should hasten to point out that the word debates should probably be in scare quotes in this instance. More on that later. Now, people in the Western world had known about the existence of the great apes for much of history. For example, Aristotle remarks in his History of Animals that apes share many of the properties of man. And of course, the great apes were well known to the peoples of Central Africa and Southeast Asia, where they were hunted for food and other purposes. However, the complexity of our relationship didn't come to be a major public issue until 1859, when Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, outlining his theory of evolution by a process of natural selection. In On the Origin of Species, Darwin deliberately doesn't address the descent of humans from a common ancestor with modern apes, although he did believe that, opaquely saying only, quote, light will be thrown on the 
origin of man and his history, end quote. Darwin was at the time concerned with the backlash that might come from directly contradicting the biblical account of human origins in Genesis, but the implications of Darwin's natural selection on human descent were obvious to those that had read and critiqued his work. Darwin's theory seemed to lead to the idea that humans are a part of nature, and guided by natural processes rather than traditional understandings of humanity as separately created to serve dominion over nature. The question of whether or not humans are animals, and thus part of nature, does have profound philosophical implications. Years later, in 1871, Darwin did publish The Descent of Man, outlining his theory of human descent, but the issue came to a head well before that, in June of 1860, at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Now, I introduced this section as the 1860 Oxford Evolution Debates, but I should point out that there were no formal debates at this meeting, but rather papers and presentations were given, followed by what could be called, say, spirited discussion. This was the case on June 28, 1860, when Charles Dalbany, a botany professor at Oxford, read a paper on how natural selection offers an explanation of reproductive organs in plants, and endorsed Darwin's work, although somewhat hesitantly. The famous biologist and paleontologist Richard Owen responded to Dalbany's paper in a speech by attacking the underlying premise of Darwinian evolution by the process of natural selection. Richard Owen believed, as was the dominant view of the time, that perhaps some changes in the forms of animals had occurred over time as part of God's plan, but evolution on a large scale could not have happened, and insisted that animals were created by God from distinct archetypical forms. To argue his point, Owen explained that if humans and apes share a common ancestry, as was implied by Darwinian evolution, we should expect to see overwhelming similarities in the structures of their brains to ours. He claimed that no such grand similarities exist, saying by one account, quote, The brain of the gorilla was more different from that of man than from that of the lowest primate, particularly because only man had a posterior lobe, a posterior horn, and a hippocampus minor. He reassured the audience that humans had definitively not descended from monkeys and left the stage. Enter into our story Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, who already earned a reputation for himself as a staunch defender of Darwin's theory. Darwin himself was not present due to illness. To illustrate Huxley's response, we'll listen to a snippet of the 1978 BBC television drama miniseries The Voyage of Charles Darwin. Now, this dramatization of what happened is certainly not an accurate representation of the events, since there isn't a complete written record of exactly what was said, but it is useful at least for getting at how modern people have interpreted the 1860 Oxford debates. Mr. Darwin has spent the greater part of his life in pondering this great subject. As for myself, I have spent the last several years in studying the very anatomical question you have chosen to pronounce upon. Namely, the development of vertebrate anatomy, and especially its relation to the origin of mankind. Our knowledge is far from complete, but the structural likenesses between men and apes are manifest and undeniable. Whether apes, bishops, or mushrooms are the creation of God, I am not competent to judge. <laughs> we now know through careful dissection that Owen's assertion that gorillas and other apes are missing a hippocampus minor is not true, but that wasn't obvious at the time. 
Huxley finished his remarks by assuring the crowd that human dignity wouldn't be threatened by a common ancestry with apes, and that even the clergy had, quote, nothing to fear should it be shown that apes were their ancestors. This skirmish between Owen and Huxley about the physiological similarities between humans and apes set the stage for the more famous scene at the meeting that would come two days later. Again, the scene began with the presentation of a paper, this time by John William Draper, whose remarks were notable primarily for being very dull. Draper's address was followed by several comments and speeches that largely abandoned Draper's specific points and instead discussed the general merits of Darwin's theory. Eventually, Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop of Oxford and a fierce critic of Darwin, began to speak. Wilberforce was reportedly a great public speaker, and he used his oratorical skills to attack Darwin and natural selection, first scientifically questioning how a common ancestor between any two species could exist when hybrid breeding produced only sterile animals that can't reproduce, but also by arguing that animal ancestry threatened human dignity and the idea of our special concern to a benevolent god. It was Wilberforce's closing quip, however, that was best remembered. Let's return to that BBC dramatization. I see I have made little impression on Mr. Huxley. Let me ask him just one question. Is it through his grandfather or his grandmother that he claims descent from a monkey? <laughs> Huxley then rose and gave a speech defending Darwin's theory. Let's hear the end of his speech from that same BBC drama. I will answer your question, my Lord Bishop. An ape may seem to you to be a poor sort of creature, of low intelligence and stooping gait that grins and chatters as we pass. But I would rather have an ape for an ancestor than a man who is prepared to prostitute his undoubted gift of eloquence and culture to the service of prejudice and falsehood. Now that makes for good television, doesn't it? But whether this telling of a triumphant Huxley winning the day, which has been the popular telling for the past few decades, bears any resemblance to actual events is unclear. The historical record and newspaper accounts are not clear as to whether either side definitively won the debate in the minds of the assembly or the public, although both sides and their boosters certainly claimed they had won in the immediate aftermath. By one account, the room was so large and crowded that most people there couldn't even hear Wilberforce or Huxley, making it a moot point. The scientific debate over evolution was far from over, but the 1860 Oxford evolution debates marked the beginning of what would be a major paradigm shift in the scientific world, away from humans as unique creatures, and towards a view of humans as being part of the natural system. And even in this early moment, apes in particular were being looked to as the most direct bridge between humanity and everything else. Indeed, the scientific worldview has in some ways come to confirm Wilberforce's worst fears, that humans and apes might share a familial bond. Although millions of years removed, we are less siblings or cousins or even second cousins than perhaps 250,000th cousins, but the relationship did represent a major change in thinking, one that we are in some ways still grappling with. Act 2, 
The Voyage of the Astro Chimps. The next piece of our puzzle takes us to 1959, when over 100 chimpanzees were purchased by the United States Air Force and brought to Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Here, the chimpanzees were evaluated and tested until six were selected for training. The six chimpanzees were trained and tested with the hopes that a few of them could be sent into outer space to act as human surrogates and testing the effects of spaceflight. An Air Force informational video made a few years later explains. Because these primates are so remarkably similar to man in mental as well as physical makeup, they are ideal surrogates for man in tests involving potentially hazardous conditions. The close comparison exists in bone and muscle structure, in blood types, in the composition and functioning of the body organs, and in the capability of responding to stimuli and solving problems. Thus, data obtained from the chimpanzee may be extrapolated to the performance of a man under comparable circumstances. The chimpanzees went through similar training to the early human astronauts, becoming acclimated to high g-forces and pressure. Unlike the Russian space dog Laika, which had been the first animal to orbit the Earth in 1957 and was a passive passenger on board Sputnik 2, the chimpanzees were taught to perform basic tasks while in space in an attempt to test whether human astronauts would be able to function in space. We'll return to the Air Force video for a moment where you'll hear the sound of clacking and banging, which is the sound of the chimpanzee hitting buttons and levers at an impressive pace. When the newcomer to the chimp colony has completed his physical examinations and become accustomed to the routine, he is ready to begin his experimental work. Now, as man's representative in the research program, he is trained on certain basic performance schedules, using equipment designed and developed by laboratory personnel, in which he responds to signals by pressing levers and pushing buttons. The learning process is aided by positive and negative reinforcement, by applying a mild electric shock to the soles of his feet, which causes some discomfort but no pain when he fails to give the proper responses, and by rewarding the animal with a food pellet or a drink of water when he performs correctly. Finally, after years of training, on January 31st, 1961, one of the chimpanzees, named only Subject 65, was prepared for the first space flight of a chimpanzee, outfitted with a special seat, a chimp-sized spacesuit, and an array of buttons and levers in front of him to test his responsiveness in space. All told, Subject 65's flight into outer space lasted only 16 minutes and 39 seconds before the capsule splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean. And though the flight had briefly subjected the chimpanzee to 18 Gs of force, well exceeding the 11 Gs that had been anticipated, Subject 65 was recovered with only a bruised nose. Upon his safe return, Subject 65 was renamed HAM, after an acronym for Holloman Aerospace Medical Center. And Ham the Astrochimp was, for a time, something of a hero, celebrated in the media as an achievement of the American space program. Ham was, after all, the first hominid to go into space, over nine weeks before Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to go into space, and three months before the first American, Alan Shepard, went into space. During the flight, Ham performed the same button and lever pushing that he'd been trained to do, and was only fractionally slower in space than on Earth demonstrating, importantly, that human astronauts would be able to interact with their equipment while in space. 
Ham's flight was followed by another flight on November 29, 1961, where a second chimpanzee named Enos was sent into space, this time orbiting the Earth twice before returning to the ground. These chimpanzees helped pave the way for American manned space exploration. Ham and Enos made possible the space flights of Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, and John Glenn, the heroes of American spaceflight. Still, there are some who raise, I think, legitimate concerns about the treatment these chimpanzees were subjected to. Being captured by animal trappers in Cameroon, forced to undergo rigorous testing, and launched into space under potentially dangerous conditions. The famous primatologist Jane Goodall remarked upon seeing footage of Ham's 16-minute flight, quote, I have never seen such terror on a chimp's face. Ham the astrochimp died in 1983 and initially the plan was to have Ham's body stuffed and put on display at the National Air and Space Museum. But there was public outcry about the idea. As one letter from a sophomore at West High School in Painted Post, New York put it, quote, By treating his body like that of a stupid beast, people will continue thinking of apes as stupid beasts, and not the intelligent, almost human animals that they really are. Those plans were scrapped, and now Ham is buried at the International Space Hall of Fame in Alamogordo, New Mexico. At the spot, there is a plaque that reads simply, World's First Astrochimp Ham, and also says, quote, Ham proved that mankind could live and work in space. People will still sometimes lay flowers at the otherwise plain-looking grave of the first American who went to outer space. Act 3, The Talking Apes. In Act 1 of this show, we talked about how Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection challenged notions of human exceptionalism, that we are somehow separated from the natural world, somehow above it. At the time, the explanations were primarily religious, but in more recent history, there have been secular attempts to isolate some factor or trait that separates humanity from the rest of animals. One of the most popular explanations was that humans are dominant and separate because we alone possess the ability to communicate, to talk with one another, and share information. This raises a lot of interesting questions about animals' capacity for communication. For instance, what if we could teach apes how to talk? Could we communicate with a species other than ourselves? And what would that mean for ideas about human exceptionalism? What would that mean for our role as the dominant species on this planet? What would that mean for our definitions of personhood? What would that mean for the standards by which we treat animals? All interesting questions. Our story begins in 1931 with a chimpanzee named Gawa. Gawa was brought at a young age into the home of scientists Luella and Winthrop Kellogg, who raised the chimpanzee as though it were a human child, alongside their own son, Donald. The idea was that if chimpanzees, which were known to be very similar to humans, were exposed to language the same way that human children are, they might too learn to understand in the same way that human children naturally pick up on it. Gawa wore baby's clothes, played the same games, and generally was interacted with in entirely the same way as their human child. After just a few months, Gawa the chimpanzee showed signs of development surpassing Donald in responding to basic commands and using a cup and spoon to eat. However, when it came to language development, Donald was forming his first words, but Gawa said nothing. The experiment continued for over two years, but Gawa never learned to speak. 
ape-human communication seemed a failure. Similar experiments were again taken up in 1947 with the chimpanzee Vicky, who was again raised as a human child. Vicky, however, was more successful and eventually able to form a few basic words, mama, papa, cup, and up, although they were difficult to discern. Here's a clip of Vicky talking, see if you can hear it. Things changed dramatically in 1966 when a chimpanzee named Washoe was taught sign language. Sign language, it turns out, is much more suited to the physiology of apes, who have relatively dexterous hands, but limited vocal cords. Washoe was eventually able to learn over 350 words of sign language, and sparked several other similar studies attempting to teach sign language to other great apes. Perhaps the most famous of these experiments is Coco the Gorilla, who began learning sign language in 1972 under the training of graduate student Penny Patterson. Patterson claims that Coco now knows over 1,000 words of sign language, and for a time Coco was a bit of a celebrity, seen on TV interacting with Mr. Rogers, Robin Williams, and Captain Kirk. I'd like to take a minute to focus on a different ape for a while, though, a bonobo named Kanzi. In the early 80s, psychologist Dr. Sue Savage-Rumbaugh and a team were teaching an adult bonobo named Matata to use lexigrams for conversation. The way lexigrams work is the bonobo is presented with a computer board with various abstract symbols on it. When the bonobo pushes one of the symbols, it will light up, and a computer voice will say in English what it is. The idea was that the bonobos could memorize the board and have conversations using pre-programmed words. The bonobo Matata was not successful in picking up the lexigrams, but her adopted son, Kanzi, who was present for Matata's training and only a few months old, began spontaneously using the lexigrams without being intentionally trained. Kanzi has since been trained to use almost 400 words via the lexigrams and understands many more words of spoken English. Here is a clip of Kanzi working on vocabulary with a trainer. Banana. Banana. Very nice. Banana. Banana. Can you find peanuts? Peanut. Thank you. Will you find eggs? Sherman. Egg. Good. Can you find milk? Milk. Milk. Good. How about apple? Apple. Very good. How about Sue? Sue. Very good. Kanzi is also able to perform remarkably complex tasks, like helping with cooking, lighting fires, and most interestingly, making stone tools. Wild chimpanzees have been observed doing things like using rocks to smash open nuts, but Kanzi has taken the next step in stone tool making by learning how to smash rocks and use the shards to cut things, like a rope holding back food, as in this scene from the documentary Kanzi, an ape of genius. Dr. Nicholas Toth an archaeologist from the University of Indiana, would survive very well in the Stone Age. An accomplished stone tool maker, it was Toth's idea to have Kanzi make a blade. He devised this food store, securely fastened by a rope. Tugging the rope does nothing to release the food. Dr. Toth showed Kanzi how to take a stone in each hand and strike them together to make a tool. A skilled stone napper can quickly make a sharp flint blade by hand without resorting to force. But Kanzi chose a more energetic method. 
Whatever works, use it. Kanzi was soon sawing a rope. Perhaps we just witnessed a replay of untold similar moments in our own human prehistory. In a very interesting way, by his own innovation, he learned that by throwing one stone against another, he could easily fracture them and produce sharp edges. This is something we never showed him. He learned on his own. Just uh, a few months after Kanzi started flaking stone, he learned to do this all by himself, by throwing one stone against another. This may be showing us some glimmerings of the origins of stone technology in human evolution. One of the common critiques leveled at the other so-called talking apes, like Washoe and Coco, was that their language seems to be lacking in any kind of grammar or syntax, where the apes could clearly be seen to be understanding sentences as sentences, rather than just individual words. Kanzi seems to have broken that particular barrier, as it appears that he understands how words relate to one another, and not just words in a vacuum, as seen here in the same documentary where Kanzi's trainer, Dr. Sue Savage Rumbaugh, gives Kanzi complex and instructions, where the order of words matters, that Kanzi had never previously learned. Kanzi understands long sentences as well as words. He's no good with lists, but sentences present no problem. Sue dons a welder's mask to prevent him reading her expression. Okay, I'm going to put on my mask and we're going to try a, a sentence for Kanzi, okay? okay. Can, you, can you hear me, Kanzi? Give the doggy a shot. Pausing only to locate the hypodermic syringe, he uncaps it and... Good job. Okay, thank you. Put the key in the refrigerator. Good job. Thank you. Very nice. Okay. Take the chow outdoors. For Kanzi to accomplish these tasks, he had to understand not just the words being spoken, but how they related to one another, which is a fundamental part of language. However, one major difference between the way we communicate and the way apes like Kanzi communicate remains, which is that only 4% of Kanzi's communication is commentary, or communication just to point something out or observe, and the other 96% is functional. Whereas human speech is used for recreation, teaching, and most other aspects of our lives, Kanzi uses language primarily as a functional tool to be used to get something that he wants. Kanzi's enormous vocabulary and ability to do really complex tasks in novel ways can raise interesting questions about just how similar apes are to us. Although their intelligence has perhaps been overstated from time to time, they clearly do have some fairly high intelligence, comparable to that of human children. They look like us in a lot of ways, but these questions remain. Do they think like us? Do they feel like us? Let's return to that Kanzi documentary to a scene where Kanzi's sister, Panvenisha, gets excited during a hike in the woods and jumps on their dog. Overexcitement can cause bad behavior, such as jumping on the dog. And Benicia knows she's being scolded. Is this the face of Bonobo contrition? Good. I hope so. 
As if to atone, Pan Vanisha goes to pat the dog she jumped on. Scientists of different fields are divided on the extent of apes and other animals' capacity to feel emotion or understand basic concepts of right and wrong, but you can see how it can be tempting to anthropomorphize their actions. Let's listen to one last bit from the Kanzi documentary that comments on this. The scene begins with Dr. Sue Savage Rumbaugh attempting to use language with one of the other bonobos in the colony, named Tabuli. On one occasion, demands imposed by three months of filming caused human and bonobo tempers to flare. The producers asked Sue to put sentences to Tamuli to see if Kanzi would explain them to her. But Tamuli, who does not understand language, became frustrated. She began kicking Sue. Pound for pound, apes are five times as strong as humans. Even Tamuli is stronger than Sue, let alone Kanzi. With Sue trying to convey that she had misbehaved, Tamuli sought Kanzi's help. To his credit, Kanzi tried to arbitrate, keeping them apart. I'll point out here that Sue has been kicked quite hard, bruising her face, and Dr. Savage Rumbaugh, as the narrator put it, conveying Tabuli had misbehaved, is actually her kicking Tabuli in the head and shoulders. She's not kicking hard, and doesn't seem to injure Tabuli, but still kicking. What's happening is Dr. Savage Rumbaugh is chasing Tabuli around the enclosure while Kanzi tries to get between them to stop the fight. The scene, I think, says something of Kanzi and other apes' conception of basic social fairness. Tabuli is still unrepentant, and Sue? Kanzi stepped between them, mediating with his bulk, but the storm was almost spent. Tamuli sat down and offered an apology. Sue, badly bruised, was mollified. Peace was restored. There is, I have to point out, a bit of a dark cloud hanging over this section of our story, unfortunately, and I'll address it briefly. In recent years, Kansi's primary trainer, Dr. Sue Savage Rumbaugh, and Coco the Gorilla's primary trainer, Penny Patterson, have separately been accused of mistreating their animals, negligence, overfeeding their apes to the point of obesity, and providing unsafe conditions as these experiments continue on into 2015, underfunded and producing almost no new research. Still, Kanzi, Coco, Washoe, and the others did for a time capture the public imagination and teach us something of how similar we still are to our nearest animal relatives. And I think they serve as a poignant reminder that there is intelligent life outside of ourselves right here on Earth. go to Hollywood. Fair warning that this section of our journey does have some movie spoilers, but the most recent movie we'll be talking about came out in 1968, so you should be okay.
In the course of film history, many genres of movies have had their heyday and then since declined. Think biblical epics or westerns. Sure, you'll still get an odd western movie every now and then, but the days of John Wayne are over. And a lot of people will miss those days. But there is one genre that was huge for a time and nobody much misses now. The Monkey Movie. There are a truly shocking number of movies that are about quote-unquote monkeys, as they're usually referred in these movies, although typically they are chimpanzees, which are apes, not monkeys, but I digress. Let's list a few, shall we? Dunstan Checks In, Mighty Joe Young, Ed, the remake of Mighty Joe Young, and my favorite, MVP, Most Valuable Primate, which, by the way, got two sequels, MVP2 and MXP, Most Extreme Primate. Wait a minute, it's a monkey! The list goes on. There are a lot of ape movies. And while it's fair that most of these movies are just dumb comedies without much to say about anything, I think a few of them do give us a good window into how people were thinking about these animals at the time. I also don't think it's an accident that there are so many movies about apes. There aren't dozens of films about anteaters or tuna fish. It's something about apes that makes us want to watch them and sometimes, apparently, watch them on ice skates. Let's start with a classic, the original King Kong, which came out in 1933. A movie crew and an actress named Anne go to an uncharted island, where they meet some racistly depicted natives, and the natives capture Anne and offer her as a sacrifice to the Great Kong, a massive prehistoric gorilla over 100 feet tall. But instead of eating her, Kong seems to like Anne and takes her away in his hand. Later, when Kong and his captive are attacked by a T-Rex, Kong protects Anne, placing her on a tree while he does battle to protect her. After going on a rampage and killing a bunch of people, Kong is eventually subdued, put in chains, and brought back to New York City to be put on display. In New York City, Kong thinks the flashes of cameras are somehow hurting Anne, so he breaks free and goes on yet another rampage. And eventually, Kong finds Anne, and just as before, when he had placed her out of harm's way on a high branch, he goes to place her on the highest branch of all, the Empire State Building. But in climbing the building with his beauty in hand, he exposes himself to wave after wave of planes shooting him down, until eventually he gives in and, with one final gaze at Anne, falls to his death. In the end, it wasn't Kong's animal ferocity that got him killed, but his humanity. Kong speaks for itself, so let's move on to a very different sort of movie, the 1951 not-so-classic comedy Bedtime for Bonzo, starring future President of the United States Ronald Reagan. Now, if you know anything about Ronald Reagan's acting career before he got into politics, you know he wasn't particularly good. Not particularly bad, either, but he was always in supporting roles, or in B-movies like Bedtime for Bonzo, where he had to share his screen time with a chimpanzee. 
One of the most surprising things about Bedtime for Bonzo is its tagline, which goes, The theory of evolution has never been so zanily tested. Of course, the movie isn't exactly a documentary on evolution, but Ronald Reagan's character, Professor Peter Boyd, does agree with evolution and says so, which stands in contrast with Reagan's later years as a very conservative president where he was skeptical of evolution and supported creationist causes. Anyway, the somewhat obtuse premise of the movie is this. Reagan's character, Professor Peter Boyd, wants to marry this woman, but her father won't let him, because his father was a criminal, and he believes that criminality is somehow inherited, and he doesn't want his daughter marrying a future criminal. Reagan's character, on the other hand, thinks personality is nurture more than nature. So to somehow prove this, Reagan's character borrows a chimpanzee and, just like the speech experiments of the 1930s and 40s, tries to raise it like a human child. Professor Boyd thinks he can raise even a rambunctious chimpanzee to be good and prove that his destiny is not determined by his genetics. That's amazing. Maybe he thinks you're his papa. His papa? Hans, you've hit it. What? What did I hit? Is there any way you could let me keep him for a while? Keep Bonzo? Where? What for? At home. I want to see if he'll accept a human environment. <laughs> You'll teach him to sleep in a bed, to eat with a spoon, and make patty cakes? What will that prove? If I could teach this monkey the difference between right and wrong. And how will you know he knows? He'll tell you, maybe? No, Hans. By getting him to do right without hope of reward. To avoid wrong without fear of punishment. Something my father never had a chance to learn. Don't you see, Hans, if it works, Dean Tellinghast will have to admit that environment is all important. That heredity counts for very little. In King Kong, we saw the depiction of an ape as fearful, but also tragic because of the ways in which they are like us, whereas in Bedtime for Bonzo, the ape is innocent and childlike, in need of teaching, guidance, and most importantly, love. In the end, even the great communicator couldn't communicate with Bonzo the chimpanzee, but what Bonzo did learn was how to be good, happily ever after. One last movie this podcast really couldn't have been done without at least mentioning, 1968's Planet of the Apes. Take your stinking paws off me, you damned dirty ape! Damned dirty apes indeed. I could talk all day about the original Planet of the Apes since the whole movie is about ape-human interactions, but we'll skip to the good bit. To catch everyone up, in Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston plays an astronaut who crash lands on an alien planet inhabited by mute, savage humans and intelligent apes who hunt and experiment on said humans. Our protagonist is captured by the sentient apes and, after displaying his ability to talk, befriends a couple of chimpanzee scientists who are fascinated in him. However, in this society, it is heresy that any non-ape be intelligent, so he is brought before a religious court to determine his fate. You may proceed, Mr. Prosecutor. Learned judges, my case is simple. It is based on our first article of faith. 
that the Almighty created the ape in his own image, that he gave him a soul and a mind, that he set him apart from the beasts of the jungle and made him the lord of the planet. These sacred truths are self-evident. The proper study of apes is apes. But certain young cynics have chosen to study man. Yes, perverted scientists who advance an insidious theory called evolution. Come to the point, Dr. Lenoris. The state charges that Dr. Zira and a corrupt surgeon named Galen experimented on this wounded animal, tampering with his brain and throat tissues to produce a speaking monster. That's a lie! Mind your tongue, madam. Did we create his mind as well? Not only can this man speak, he can think. He can reason. <laughs> that can reason. With the tribunal's permission, allow me to expose this hoax by direct examination. Proceed, doctor, but do not turn this hearing into a farce. Tell the court, bright eyes, what is the second article of faith? I know nothing of your culture. I, I admit that. Of course, he doesn't know our culture because he cannot think. Tell us, why are all apes created equal? Some apes, it seems, are more equal than others. Ridiculous. Tell us, bright eyes, why do men have no souls? What is the proof that a divine spark exists in the simian brain? Huh? Remember, this movie was being made at the same time that the first experiments teaching apes sign language were happening. It's not hard to see what the creators were getting at by reversing the roles of humans and apes to point out the hypocrisy of people believing humans to be somehow special and superior when evidence of other species' intelligence was right there in front of them. Now, before we wrap this up, let's listen to just one more bit of the original King Kong, which I think gets at the heart of the way apes were treated by Hollywood and the mindset of the stereotypical monkey movie. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew. But now he comes to civilization, merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. We can laugh at goofy chimp movies like MVP, Most Valuable Primate, or Bedtime for Bonzo, or we can contemplate our place in nature with Planet of the Apes, but I think King Kong got at it best. He was a king and a god in the world he knew, but now he comes to civilization merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of Before Us, a podcast about the past. And I hope you've learned something about our changing relationship with our nearest animal relatives. There's plenty more history to come in future episodes, so I hope you'll stay with us. 
If you like this podcast, please give us your support by telling a friend or subscribing and writing a review on iTunes. Simply go to the iTunes podcast section or your podcast app and search before us to subscribe and write a review. Podcasts can live or die by their success in the first few weeks, so we really appreciate your support. If you do write a review on iTunes, go ahead and let us know by tweeting at us. Our Twitter is at BeforeUsPodcast or www.twitter.com slash BeforeUsPodcast, and we'll read a list of names at the end of next episode to express our thanks. You can follow us at our website, BeforeUsPodcast.com, or by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or on social media at Twitter.com slash BeforeUsPodcast, BeforeUsPodcast.tumblr.com, or Facebook.com slash BeforeUsPodcast. In a future episode, we will be beginning a new segment where we will answer history questions from the listeners. So if you would like to submit a question, you can send us an email by going to the contact page of our website or by simply tweeting or submitting a Tumblr ask. Thanks once again for listening, and we sincerely appreciate your support. Our intro music is by the wonderful Sawyer Hitchcock. You can find a link to his SoundCloud page at our website. This podcast is produced by Ashley Thomas and myself. I'm your host, Dan Resler. We'll see you next time.